Over the last week here, we've explored and spoken about many different ways of bringing a perhaps a greater sense of heartfulness to our practice and to our lives. And this afternoon, I'd like to talk about an area of the teaching and area of the practice which is very significant, the area of compassion. Mother Teresa once said that we are not called upon to do great things in our lives, but that we are called upon to do small things with great love. And then in this very simple and profound statement really reminds us of the heart of the spiritual life. It's a lesson we learn over and over again in our meditation. Um, We learn very quickly that approaching our meditation, which is actually to approach ourselves, but that to approach our meditation with forcing, with demand, with rejection, with judgment, um, with investment, that all of these ways actually very quickly bring sorrow. This is a very simple lesson for us to learn. We may be slow with it, but it's a simple lesson. We also see very quickly in our practice and in our lives, that to be able to approach this moment with warmth, with a willingness to learn, with forgiveness, with with heartfelt sense of openness, that this is the way also that we provide an environment for ourselves, for all people and for all things to unfold with softness, with skillfulness, and with understanding. Again, a simple lesson for us to learn. One we seem to have a great difficulty at times in believing, despite our experience. The Buddha was once asked by Ananda, Ananda said, Would it be true to say that a a part of our practice is for the development of loving-kindness and compassion? And the Buddha said, no. It wouldn't be true to say that a part of our practice is for the development of loving-kindness and compassion, that it would be true to say that the whole of our practice is for the development of loving-kindness and compassion. Again, sometimes I think when we hear these words, we this must have been a kind of moment of amnesia of the Buddhas that, you know, meditation practice is actually that much more than this. But I think we can also become easily lost and easily entangled in the intricacies of meditation practice. We can become really easily entangled with the complexity of the agendas we bring to meditation practice. Sometimes we come to meditation practice and, you know, we may begin feeling, oh yes, you know, I'm just going to be present and see what unfolds. And, you know, within hours 
within hours we can have such a long list of everything that we have to do in the practice you know I've, I've got to untangle my relationship with my father I have to resolve my anger I have to um, get rid of my greed you know and then there's that self-consciousness bit and you know there's all that business about fear and then after I've done that then I'm going to have this to do we can have such a big menu such a big menu that we hardly even know where to begin we can become really excessively concerned with measuring our meditation you know I was a lot more mindful in the last walking than I was in this one you know and Mm -hmm. That last sitting, I dealt with pain much better than I am right now. And, um, you know, yesterday my concentration was a lot better than it is today. And I obviously have to do a little bit more work on my meta practice. And we can get very entangled in our own ideas of measuring, which is all about progress and improvement, or about resolving our issues. And suddenly, this very simple path becomes deeply complicated. And in those complications, we can forget, really, that meditation is dedicated to bringing about the end of suffering. It is dedicated to being awake. And very frequently, the bridge that allows us to make that transition from suffering and entanglement to being awake is the bridge of compassion and when we think of compassion I think we are often tempted to think in terms of you know very grand sacrifices and very heroic deeds we are tempted to think in terms of very dramatic gestures and renunciations we think in terms of the Gandhis and the Mother Teresas and the Dalai Lamas of this world And of course, when we think of compassion in this way, then of course we have to think that we have to leave compassion to the saints and the Buddhas in this world. Or that compassion is somehow a state or a destination that we will arrive at, perhaps, much later on in our own journey, after we've resolved our issues and purified ourselves, or made ourselves more perfect. It is a great error in, I think, the spiritual tradition to equate perfection with being awake. I'm not at all sure that they have anything at all to do with each other. But we tend to think, I think, from a very personal point of view, that to be really awake, to be compassionate, to be all of these things that we make into ideals, then our path to them is one of somehow making ourselves more perfect as if this is a qualification for enlightenment. I mean, we don't have to be perfect at all to be compassionate. We perhaps do need to be present and to be really dedicated to being awake. That compassion is maybe not only found in in big gestures and grand sacrifices. That sometimes the heart of compassion is actually found in the very simple words 
we offer to another person, the very simple responses that we can offer to the moment, the very simple gestures of kindness, of care, that we can bring to the countless opportunities in our lives that call for kindness and care. I don't think we need to have, really, a whole portfolio of wise credentials and meditation experiences in order to be compassionate, but that perhaps we really need to know how to listen, how to really listen well. The simplicity of attending wholeheartedly to each moment in our lives without resistance, and without prejudice. I don't feel that compassion is a mind state or a specific feeling that we somehow direct towards a specific instance of suffering or pain. You know, that when we meet someone falling over in the street, we don't come up with this kind of, you know, this package that says, uh uh, right moment to be compassionate now. This not, you know, this is talking more about strategies, more about formulas, more about shoulds, more about rightness of response. I think compassion is much more a relationship, a relatedness of our hearts to the moment, and it is a way of being present in our world, in our lives, in ourselves. In the Buddhist tradition, the deity, the symbol that is used to embody or to symbolize this relationship of compassion is the deity of Kuan Yin, which is not the traditional Buddha statue, you know, of eyes closed and, you know, sitting still in meditation. If you've ever seen the deity or the symbol of Kuan Yin, it is, uh, you know, she's reaching out with open arms, with open hands, the eyes are open. And Kuan Yin, the Chinese uh, title Kuan Yin translated, means one who hearkens to the sounds of the universe, one who listens to the sounds of the universe. That quality of listening, that way of attending, that way of being present, is not even concerned with fixing suffering. I mean, there's a totally different dimension of response, which is not invested in making things right, in making things perfect, in making things, uh, bringing about a particular conclusion where we can look at it and say, oh, well, that piece of suffering is finished. I don't think compassion only takes form in this way. It's not concerned with finding exactly the right words and the right actions and the right gestures. And it's certainly, I don't think, concerned with placing blame. Listening is sometimes said to be the mother of wisdom. That our capacity to listen is the mother of wisdom. Because when we learn to listen really well, really deeply to our world and to ourselves. I think there are many revelations that come with that listening. You know, and one of them is seeing 
how incredibly transparent are all of our notions of separateness, of individuality, of apartness, of how incredibly transparent is that. I think when we listen really well, we see in so many ways how our lives, every moment in our lives, is interwoven with the whole of the world around us. We talk so much about interconnectedness, about interdependence. And I think this is something we come to know on a cellular level, on a very profound level. We come to see this and we come to see with, in which ways everything in our lives is constantly showing to us the nature of that interconnectedness. Even when we eat a single meal, you know, to take even the time to reflect on how that actually arrived. I mean, surely we can say, oh, well, the cooks did a good job today, you know, and I out by 12, here's my meal. But the threads of that very meal that sustains our life run in countless directions. For all of those people who grew the food, the earth that nourished it, the sun that shone on it, the wind, the, the, the rain that, that nurtured it, how many different factors allow us to take part, to partake of just one single mouthful of food. We see the ways as we, you know, are more, more connected with our own capacity to feel about how the ways in which the threads of feeling run through all experience, all forms of experience the joy and the pain, the fears and the happiness, the sickness, the loss, the sense of being nurtured and cared for. Is there any life which is not informed by all of these threads of feeling? And all of this life, all of these forms of life, because they are not exempt from the capacity to feel are also in need of tremendous compassion. Because compassion is what heals and restores us. It is a sanctuary. We see the many ways in which we are interconnected in our capacity to nurture each other, to nourish each other. You know, the simple ways we sit together here in the profound and actually sometimes miraculous space that is created through that joining together. We see the, the potential for understanding that is born of our interconnectedness and we see the ways that we're also in, interconnected in other ways because we are also interconnected in our capacity for delusion. This is also one of the ways in which we are interconnected in our capacity for delusion, our capacity for confusion, our capacity for anger, you know, our capacity for judgment, our capacity for isolation. No one is the sole owner of any of these feelings, any of these experiences. And perhaps the greatest delusion is the belief in separateness, the belief in this notion of a separate individual self. Because this belief is the forerunner of all suffering, the forerunner of all suffering. It is the mother or the parent 
of greed and anger, of hatred and prejudice and violence. Could any of this exist in our world? Think of a simple instance of prejudice, of violence, of hatred, of, of alienation. Can any of this exist without resting upon this apparently solid ground of a belief in separateness, of I and you, us and them, inner and outer? Because when we see ourselves as being living in a world of many other selves, all separate from each other, then we also live in a world of opponents and allies, of projected threat and projected safety. It is a world of struggle, a world of struggle. And the most essential suffering of all that calls for compassion is the delusion that keeps us exiled from what is most true within ourselves. When we make our long lists about what meditation is really all about, we should consider that it's actually always the right time to put aside our ideas of progress and regression, of attainment and non-attainment, of good and bad meditations. This is all measurement. And measurement means nothing in meditation. You know, measurement means absolutely nothing. Some of those absolute worst moments in our practice, those moments of the most tremendous struggle, are often the seeds of the most wonderful moments. Some of those most delightful moments that we want to last forever hold in themselves the seeds of those most terrible moments. There's no way to kind of measure this path and put it in compartments or measure the worth or the value of a single sitting. You can't measure insight. You can't measure understanding. You can't measure wisdom. You can't measure compassion. So it's always a big relief, actually, to be able to say, I don't know. I don't know the value. I don't know, actually, how to measure what I'm doing. I don't know if this is a good sitting. I don't know if this is a bad sitting. And this is, this is a big challenge for us, you know, because we, you know, on one level when we hear there's no such thing as a good and a bad sitting or progress or regression, you know, we all nod our heads wisely. And at the same time, we often hold this very deeply held belief system that is absolutely certain of the distinction between a good sitting and a bad sitting, about between the distinction between progress and regression, success and failure. To be open into that willingness to say, I don't know, actually allows us to listen much better. Allows us to listen in a much deeper way. Because when we are so filled with these labels, we are always filled with conclusions. There is actually no unfoldment. Because there are so many conclusions in the way. And we can't always listen or learn when we live in a world that's so bombarded by knowing. Sometimes meditation could be said to be nothing more than a wholehearted, alert, listening to this moment. So then we see actually why meditation is many times very challenging for us, just as compassion is very challenging for us. 
because we tend to live in a, with a mind that is always measuring. Um, you know, we, we tend to think that the mind that is measuring is also measuring compassion. You know, is this worthy of compassion? Is this not worthy of compassion? As if compassion is something that I own, a possession that I own, that I dispense at strategic moments. We see how many preferences we have in our listening. There's a Chinese sage who once said that this path is not difficult for those with no preferences. We see often we have a lot of preferences. You know, we listen and meditation. We're totally delighted to listen to the sound of the birds singing outside the window. But, you know, what happens if we're sitting beside someone, you know, who happens to breathe like a steam engine, you know, or you know, is always shifting and messing. You say, I won't listen to that. You know, that's getting in the way of my meditation. You know, that's actually, you know, preventing me from finding the calmness that I came here to find. You know, we say, you know, think of the moments when you have a lovely meditation, when it's peaceful and calm. You know, the bell goes, don't even want to get up and leave. You know, I'm so happy to listen to this. But think also of those moments when you have meditation, you know, that's so difficult and challenging, your knees are hurting, your mind is shouting, you know, waiting for that bell to ring, you know, as if this is the greatest liberation, you know, and I can stampede out of the meditation room and get away from this, you know. I don't want to listen to that. You know, I've got better things to do. You know, I've got better things to do. It's better moments to be awakened than this one, you know. After reading this, you know, there's got to be a better moment to be awake. You know, the next one is going to be better. Then I'll be happily awake there. You know, it's like the, the story of, of the nun in the monastery, you know. lived for many years in this monastery. She had her own space, her own private space. She had a room designed just perfect, you know. Everything was comfortable and everything just in its right place. And then one day, suddenly, she was assigned someone to move into her room to disturb this space, you know, and suddenly there was clutter, and she didn't have all this room, and she had to rearrange things, and she felt so resentful, so resentful, you know, that this person has just come here to intrude upon my space, you know, this should never have been happened, you know, there was so much reversion and resentment, and her practice happened to be the practice of metta. And every day, you know, she would sit before the Buddha statue and, and say mantras of metta and recite the phrases and light incense. And she said, well, there's one thing I don't have to share at least. I don't have to share my metta with her. You know, I don't share my room. And then nobody can make me share my metta with her. <laughs> so when she lit her incense in front of her Buddha statue, she even made a funnel, you know, so that the smell of the incense would go just to the Buddha. Not even that would go into the rest of the room. And of course, the Buddha turned black with the smoke of the incense. <coughs> Every condition sometimes is a little bit of a renunciation of this willingness to listen. And you know, sometimes we talk about breakthroughs in meditation, but the most profound breakthrough in meditation is breaking through our resistance to being with what is. Just to being with what is without conditions. And this is the invitation of compassion, the invitation of wisdom, 
This is the challenge of learning how to do small things with great love. No matter what arises, all things are welcomed. Refraining from the judgments that say, you know, this is worthy and another thing is not. Really, to know about compassion, we are asked to be empty. To be empty. Empty of these conditions. Empties of empty of our conclusions, empty of our measurements, empty in a way of this investment in self, because this is why we make conclusions, because it helps, either fosters or threatens our sense of self. Learning how to be empty, to be listening, to be present wholeheartedly, This is the most profound gift of compassion and loving-kindness that we offer to ourselves or to another person. In these moments of emptiness, we actually travel the path of the Bodhisattva. And the Bodhisattva isn't, you know, some saintly removed path. The path of the Bodhisattva is to have that very deep and profound commitment in our hearts to the end of suffering and to awaken to all that is true. Sometimes it does feel like it's easier to travel the path of distance or alienation or self-protection. But we see all the time in our lives that this pathway, you know, that you can't travel that path without also having a lot of sorrow and a lot of conflict. How we respond to suffering is very important because we all meet it in our lives. You know, when you walk by a a homeless person on the street, when you see an image in the media, the conflict, the war, the deprivation, the violence, the fear that is the companion of just so many people in our world, that there is almost no life that is untouched by pain. And sometimes we don't know how to respond, or our responses can be responses of fear. Sometimes the response that comes up is that we want to distance ourselves. There was a person who actually wrote a book that was based on interviews with homeless people in San Francisco. And one person said, you know what the pain of being homeless is? It's not the pain of not having a roof over my head. It's not the pain of, of not having neighbors. It's not the pain of, of not being sure about whether I'm going to be moved on by the police. He said, you know, the greatest pain of being homeless is that no one will look me in the eye. And sometimes I think out of, out of fear and out of fear of suffering, we feel that we need to distance ourselves, that we need to protect ourselves, that unless we do this, that we will be overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the intensity of pain in our world. Sometimes we, we feel in the face of sorrow that we become very, very angry, very enraged. We find ourselves shouting at the world and finding fault. Anger sometimes can be an energy that helps us to look for answers that brings us closer 
And yet to remain stuck in anger, we are also married in a very essential way, married to whatever we are angry with. It is hard in the face of suffering to learn to be still, to learn how to be touched, and to have the confidence that in being touched, the response of healing, the response of compassion will arise by itself. A little bit like the verse that Yvonne read this morning. Do we have the patience to wait until the mud settles? Do we have the patience and confidence to be still so that the response that touches, that heals, that awakens can arise by itself? This is a very fine practice. To learn how to listen in that way, to not turn away from, to not feel compelled to impulsively jump in, to fix something, you know, with one great solution after another, to certainly be empowered to respond, to act, to speak, to move, but that those responses can be born of a profound stillness. Loving-kindness doesn't necessarily require dramatic gestures, grand sacrifices. Sometimes that compassion, loving-kindness is so simple. When I lived in India, I spent some time in, in the home for the dying that Mother Teresa and her nuns created in Calcutta. And I remember feeling totally stunned being there. Because, you know, it was like, it was the endlessness of it. The endlessness of the suffering was so incredible that, you know, the nuns would know even if someone recovered that they would be back there, that they would return in a few weeks to die again, you know, to go through the process of dying again. And there were so countless, of course, countless people who, of course, never did recover to return. And the, the enormity of that endlessness of sorrow was so incredible. And yet you see these nuns, you know, kind of going around just doing their thing, you know, doing their thing, looking after these people, you know, who are often very diseased, very ravaged. And I remember really feeling, how, how can we do this? You know, and of course the temptation is to make these nuns into really special people, you know. Ah, you know, these are the saints. This is where the saints are hanging out in the world, you know. They're all here in the home for the dying, you know. They all somehow magically gathered here together in this one spot. That's the temptation is to idealize what they were doing. On another level, those nuns actually were very young women, very often sometimes simple, sometimes educated women. But their task was very simple, just to respond to the moment. Just to respond to the moment. And, you know, if you asked them, the nuns so often they would say, you know, in serving this person, we are serving God. They're looking in the face of God. And that kind of simplicity of listening, it didn't mean necessarily, you know, that there were no demons existing without, within those nuns, no struggles, no conflict. I'm sure there were. I'm sure there were. And yet that commitment to listen, to be present, is incredibly powerful in its capacity to embrace and to accommodate the demons that we meet within ourselves just as it's incredibly powerful enough to accommodate 
the suffering that we meet in our lives, in our world and in other people. Is it so contrary to our conditioning? You know, I think part of our conditioning says, you know, if something is amiss, if something is wrong, you know, we have to be on top of it. You know, we have to do. We have to fix. You know, and, you know, if it's not fixed, it's because we haven't tried hard enough yet, you know, or we haven't yet found the right prescription. You know, hardly anywhere in our world is non-doing considered to be a path to the end of suffering. Yet here it is. But it's a different kind of non-doing. It's not a non-doing. What we, I mean, in meditation, we don't really, you know, we're trying our best not to do. You know, we're trying our best actually to disengage from doing. But that doesn't mean a retreat into passivity, into numbness. Uh, inaction. It doesn't mean a retreat into paralysis of response. I think actually what we discover in meditation is that in this climate of listening, the climate of stillness, the climate of non-doing, the most creative doing emerges. The most creative, the most powerful response emerges. And that somehow this is the home of responsiveness. Not, the, not coming just from prescriptions and fixing. And perhaps the whole surrender, the whole renunciation of the need to fix has much to do with compassion. You know? As long as we need to fix, we have no patience. We have no spaciousness. And we can't offer that anywhere. And we can't offer it to ourselves. As long as, you know, fixing has a demand. Something should has to be different than what it is. Something has to be different than what it is. It doesn't mean to look outwardly or look inwardly and say that all things are acceptable and all things are wonderful. Of course they are not. But to place then a demand upon that, that it is not, that, that it has to be different than what it is perhaps deprives ourselves and deprives our whole world of the opportunity to unfold through a power of love and skillfulness and compassion. We think of this in, in the light of our own experience. Think of any time when you have placed upon yourself the demand to be different than you are. The demand that your experience has to be different that it is not worthy of your attention. Then if it is not worthy of your attention, just as it is, we have no choice but to struggle, to try to banish it, to make it into something other. Retreats are such a wonderful opportunity to really learn how to listen and to really listen and, and look at our addiction to fixing and solving and doing, just as retreats are a wonderful opportunity to explore aversion. You know, it's almost like they're purpose-built opportunities to explore aversion. We see there are many things we don't like, many things we may resist, parts of ourselves we judge. 
In those moments, we can follow very familiar pathways of control, of anger, of reactiveness. We can also follow the pathway of learning how to stay with, to be patient with, to listen well, to really explore the quality of our relatedness to this moment. And perhaps that relatedness to this moment of being able to listen, being able to open, is in itself the most profound expression of compassion. What we do in meditation is we invite into our lives and we invite into our hearts and minds a quality of communion, a call, or an invitation to oneness, to come closer to ourselves. And this coming closer to ourselves and to the moment actually reveals in itself that which is most true. We don't really have to do a lot in meditation. Certainly there's much that we extend in terms of effort and commitment and dedication and attentiveness. But then it is almost as if our work is complete. Because much of what is actually revealed to us in meditation comes related to all that we extend, but also comes just through our willingness to be one with what is. To invite that quality of communion, the silence of non-dwelling, of non-holding, of non-resistance. The heart of meditation practice is really similar to the heart of ourselves. It is really about freedom, about wakefulness, about understanding, about compassion. And in a way, in meditation practice, we're really not trying to get somewhere else, you know. We're not trying to, you know, even to call it a journey in one way is completely wrong. Because there isn't actually a journey to make to go from here to here. There isn't actually a, a journey to make in order to reach that which is already true and already present within ourselves and within the moment. And yet the very practice that we do here, it is not intended to indicate, you know, development, progress, improvement. The very practice that we do here reminds us again and again of the power of stillness, the power of listening, because this is to where we actually find the power of compassion in small ways, in small actions, and yet in every moment of true listening, there is compassion. If we take just a couple of moments quietly together. Okay. 